You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Today's teaching text is from Luke 24, 13, verses 13 through 27 on the road to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named... Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. We believe it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for giving us a copy of the Bible, as we are about to talk about, which is a sacred text. It's not just words on a page. It's not just a rule book. It's not just a, a manual to teach us how to live our best life now. Um, This is a sacred, inspired word that you have preserved through a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and you have passed down to us. And I pray that right now, through your Holy Spirit, that you would use this teaching text today to open our hearts to see you as you really are. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. This guy you see on the screen is William Tyndale. He's one of the most significant church leaders we have ever known. He was a professor at Cambridge. He was fluent in eight different languages. And he's responsible for translating the Bible in, uh, from its original language, which is Greek and Hebrew, into English. On top of that, uh, because William Tyndale was so personally impacted by the Bible, he had this, this strong conviction that every single person who wanted a copy of this Bible should be able to get access to it. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you because we all have scriptures open up in our lap today, right? Whether it's a hard copy, which I hope you have, or even if not, you have an app on your phone, and you can pretty much get access to the scriptures anytime, anywhere, any place. But that's not the way it was in Tyndale's day. Uh, King Henry VIII had actually passed a law that uh, restricted anybody from owning a copy of the scriptures. But Tyndale said, man, that's not the way it should be. Like, if these people are going to know God, if they're going to experience the life he created them to experience, they need to have the Bible in their own language. And so he actually fled to Germany. Uh, He ended up translating the Bible into English. And then after doing that, uh, he smuggled in 18,000 Bibles 
back into England. And so for the first time ever in history, Christians were able to read this on their own. And as a result, revival broke out. I mean, God began to move in an incredible way. And so King Henry VIII, he was threatened by this. So he actually went and he confiscated 6,000 Bibles and burned them on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral. And so just imagine, like we think our world's corrupt. Imagine if our president went and like confiscated all the Bibles he could and just like burn it on the steps of the biggest church building in America. Like that's where they were at this place. Uh, not only did he do that, but he also passed another law that said if anybody is found to have one of these Bibles in their homes, they will be put to death, no questions asked. He then hired a spy to go to Germany to pretend to be one of Tyndale's disciples. He then betrayed Tyndale. They had him arrested. They brought him back to England. And they said, okay, we're going to give you a chance to recant, to say you're sorry for making all these Bibles. Tyndale refused to recant, and eventually he was burnt at the stake. Now, before he died, history tells us that his last words were actually a prayer. And his prayer was this, God, open the eyes, open the heart of King Henry. And God answered that prayer. Uh, Several years later, after there was a lot more persecution, Henry did recant of his decisions to put Henry to death and others, I mean, or or Tyndale to death and others, and he actually passed a law that legalized people to have a copy of the scriptures on their own. And the reason I bring that up is I want you to consider this. A question I have for you is, what is it about this Bible that has caused men or women like Tyndale to suffer and die just to make sure we can have a copy of it today. While at the same time, apparently it's so powerful that it calls some tyrants, like King Henry, to murder and kill in order to keep it out of your hands. And yet, I think an even better question is, why is it that so many of us seem to care so little about it? I mean, we show up and we hear a sermon, or maybe we tune in to a podcast, but why is it that fewer and fewer people are spending unhurried, quality time in the Scriptures on a regular basis. Earlier this week, I came across an article in Christianity Today where it said that researchers from the American Bible Society concluded that during COVID, roughly 26 million Americans stopped reading their Bible regularly. Lead researcher John Blake said, We reviewed our calculations, we double-checked our math, and ran the numbers again. What we discovered was startling, disheartening, and disruptive. The percentage of those who claim to read the Bible regularly is in the steepest and sharpest decline in American history. The research went on to indicate that only 39% of Americans claim to read the Bible at least one to two times a year. Yes, you heard that correctly, year. While only 10% of Americans claim, again, this is what they claim, only 10% of Americans claim to read the Bible daily. And this is why, despite the fact there are still 55,000 Bibles sold every single day, it remains, as some have called it, the best-selling book that is never read. And in the meantime, as the Bible reading continues to rapidly decline, things like anxiety and depression and suicide continue to skyrocket. Psychologists are all sounding the alarm. We are now living in what they call a mental health crisis, where despite the fact we have more technology than ever before, more money, than ever before, more options than ever before, we are still a people who by and large are unhappier than ever before. And what I submit to you this morning is that more than we need a better house or a new spouse, like more than we need a bigger bank account or longer vacations or more likes on social media, if you are going to flourish in this world, 
If you're going to learn how to be happy, to have joy, to have peace, no matter what is going on around you, then more than we need anything else, what we need is a true and better story to live by. A story that is rooted in this Bible. A story that has preceded all other stories. A story that if, if, if guys, if this goes from just being something you get in here to truly getting and applying in here will fill you with the hope and the peace and the joy that is as durable as the resurrection of Jesus. And so with that in mind, I want to encourage you to look back with me at our teaching text in Luke 24. And just to set the context for you, what's going on is we've just been introduced to two disciples who are not in a good place. As far as they know, this long-awaited Messiah is dead. He has been crucified by Roman soldiers and buried in a tomb. And therefore, we find them walking with a deep, deep sense of sorrow in their hearts. They're walking away from Jerusalem. They're walking away from the temple, a temple which is symbolic for. They're actually walking away from God. And what brings me so much encouragement in this passage is that it's in this place of disappointment. It's in this place of chaos and confusion. Though they are walking away from God, God comes and walks among them. In verse 15, it says, as they were talking about everything that had just taken place in Jerusalem, Jesus came and, quote, walked along them. But if you notice what happens, it says in verse 16, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, what is this about? What is this about? Well, honestly, I don't really know, and nobody really knows. It's all just speculation. Uh, I don't know why they didn't know this, the very person they had been talking about here. But as I thought about that this past week, I thought, you know, this really isn't that uncommon even in our day. The Bible tells us that Jesus is here right now through the power of his spirit. And for some of us, we talk a lot about Jesus. We know a lot of facts about Jesus. And yet in our own walk, in our own journey, don't we oftentimes do the same thing? Jesus would come and stand right here beside us, and we would not know it if he did. We wouldn't recognize him. We live throughout our entire day almost completely unaware of the presence of the risen Christ. We don't see him. We don't feel him. We don't know how he's working in our midst. Even in a service like this, have you ever stopped to consider Jesus is here? He's here right now. But so often we don't even know it. And that's where we find these men. They don't recognize Jesus, even though they're standing with him. Here's this one who has conquered sin, death, and hell, but their eyes are blind, their hearts are heavy, their feet are leading them away from God. And yet God, in his grace, through the person of Jesus, pursues them. As I thought about that this week, I thought about my testimony. And how whenever I was 20 years old, my sophomore year of college, I'm flunking out. And as my mom and dad would tell you, I wasn't just walking away from God. I was running from God. And yet he pursued me. And I wasn't in a church service like this. Yeah, I didn't have some sort of church with this great music and lighting. And, and the, the sermon wasn't like, I didn't even hear a sermon. I was in my room, minding my own business. And God overwhelmed me with his presence. He pursued me and he saved me. And that's what's happening right here. These men are not looking for God. They're walking away from God. But God comes looking for them. The risen Jesus walks with them on this road. And notice what he does when he shows up. He doesn't start with condemning them. He doesn't start with preaching a sermon at them. But he starts and he opens his dialogue with a question. In verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? 
Guys, this is what a good missionary does. Please hear me. More and more people in our culture today are, are turning away from God. And if we want to help see people who are far from God be brought near, we don't need to stand on the corner with a, with a bullhorn. We don't need to like throw tracks at them. We don't need to show up and tell them all of the ways they're getting it wrong. But the first thing you should do is meet somebody where they are and begin to ask them questions about their life and listen to what they have to say. Get to know what's going on in their own heart before you ever say anything else. That's what we see happen right here with Jesus says, what are you guys discussing? He knows what they're discussing. He knows everything. But he opens up a question. So I'm trying to get the conversation going. What are you guys talking about? They stood there, verse 17, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know what just happened in Jerusalem? Like, are you so ignorant that you don't know what just happened to this guy named Jesus? I love this, verse 19. Jesus, what are you, what are you talking about? What, what, what just happened? We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and all our rulers, they they handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Notice they have all the right facts about what had just happened. But look at this, verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now we see why they're so sad. They said we had hoped that this Jesus guy was going to overthrow the Roman government. We had hoped Jesus was going to restore Israel back to the top of the food chain. But now, this guy that we thought was going to make our lives so much better is dead. The story didn't end the way we thought it was going to. This Messiah, this long-awaited Savior that we had put our hope in has been buried. He didn't do for us what we thought he was going to do for us. And maybe some of you can relate to that today. Maybe for some of you, when you think about your own story, there are times where Jesus just did not come through for you the way that you hoped that he would. I'd hoped Jesus was going to restore my marriage. I'd hoped Jesus was going to bring healing. I met with a woman in my office this past week who'd uh, been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Been praying, praying, praying. Cancer did go away and then came back and now it's all over her body and her brain. And she just sat with me and said, please tell me, is God mad at me? Or is it that he's not even there? Why is he not answering my prayers? Some of you have been there. You hope Jesus would bring healing. Maybe you hope you would find the perfect church. You'd hope to find the perfect job. You would hope God would, would have kept this bad thing from happening to you, but he didn't. And therefore, for some of you, even right now, as you sit here with your Bibles open, you also sit with this own cocktail of doubt and disappointment that has created this distance in your heart between you and the God who has not met your expectations. That's where we find these disciples. The story they are believing in their head is that Jesus is dead. And as a result, their faith has been dismantled and their lives completely disoriented. But in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the loneliness, God shows up. In this place of death and doubt and darkness and despair, the risen Jesus appears. And what's so incredible to me, and I want you to notice this for our time together today, what's so incredible to me is what Jesus chooses to do in order to get these disciples back on track. Because what's amazing to me in this text is rather than Jesus doing a little miracle, rather than him performing some sign and wonder that would prove miraculously that he is the Messiah, the first thing, notice this today, the first thing Jesus does in order to redirect their lives is to reframe their narrative. The first thing Jesus does to redirect their lives 
is to reframe their narrative. And he does so how? By opening up the Bible. Did you know Jesus believes the Bible? And he loves the Bible? He quoted the Bible all the time in his ministry. And so as a way of helping these disciples see ultimate reality, as a way of helping them see God and themselves and the world around them as it really is, he first turns to the scriptures. And look what happens, verse 25. He says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. He says, wait, this whole thing that just happened in Jerusalem that you were talking about, the prophets have been saying that for, for hundreds of years. That's one of the way, reasons, by the way, we look at the scriptures it's one of the many reasons we look at the scriptures as it being a divine word is unlike any other religion like uh, Mormonism or, or even the Islamic faith where just kind of one guy went into a cave and came back with a, you know, an inspired word for everybody. The Bible is written over thousands of years. And he's saying, look, these prophets have been telling you for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years this was all going to happen. It's like, did you not see this when you were reading the Bible? This is how, how foolish are you and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Verse 26. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In other words, the crucifixion had to happen. There had to be a crucifixion, and then there had to be a, a resurrection on the other side of that. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And look at this, verse 27, I love this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so here are these two disciples. They're melancholy, they're confused, they're aimlessly and hopelessly drifting through life. There's no clear direction, there's no purpose, there's no joy. And what does Jesus do to get them back on track? He hosts a Bible study. He opens up the scriptures and he shows them how everything that we read in here, no matter where it is found, it's all telling, listen to me, just one unified story that all points back to Jesus. And guys, it is so important that we get this. If you're about to fall asleep, wake up because this right here is worth the price of admission. Despite what you have been told, the Bible is not just a bunch of random disconnected stories that are here to tell you how to be a good boy or a good girl. That's not primarily what this is about. It's not a rule book or a manual that's trying to show you how to live a good moral life. But rather, please hear this. You don't hear anything else. The Bible is first and foremost a story, and it is a story that is all about Jesus. Tim Keller says this, the reason for our confusion over the Bible, anybody here feel confused over the Bible? The reason for our confusion over the Bible is we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with the moral for how to live our lives. In other words, what he means by that is, if you grew up and in, in going to church in Sunday school, you're out there, they'd get out the felt board and they'd say, here's a story about David and Goliath, or here's a story about Samson. And the moral always was, obey your parents, right? Like that was just the point. Like that's why that's here. That's why it's here. Like David killed Goliath so that you would clean your room tomorrow, right? The reason for our confusion over the Bible is we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with the moral for how to live our lives. It is not. I love that. That's not what it is, Tim Keller says. Rather, it comprises a single story that tells us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come again to put things right. What is Keller saying? The same thing Jesus says right here in Luke 24. Guys, despite what you have been told, and it's a really cute acronym. Anybody ever heard, what's the Bible stand for? What is the Bible for? 
right? It is basic instruction before leaving earth. Anybody else ever heard of that before? Really cute, really memorable. If, if that's a t-shirt you have or whatever, God bless you for it, but it's just not accurate. That's not primarily what the Bible is. The, the Bible is a story about a God who is so crazy in love with his creation that he did anything he could even do crazy lengths in order to redeem it and restore it in Christ. That's what this Bible is all about. And according to Jesus, we have to get this because, listen, Jesus says to these disciples, and he says to you and me today, if you're thrown off right now, if you're heading the wrong direction, if your life doesn't make sense, if you don't know what your purpose is, if there's no joy, there's no peace, there's no real meaning. He says, look, look, like if you're just drifting through life with no hope, the reason that you're going the wrong direction is you believe the wrong narrative. That's what Jesus says right here. And therefore, what does he do? He says, we need to replace the lies that you're believing with the truth. And the way that we do this is by turning to the Bible, to the story of God. That's what Jesus himself does. That's his go-to. Not like, let me do this little miracle to prove to you all this. Let's look at the Bible. The ultimate authority for how to live our lives with God. And then check this out. After probably what was the best Bible study the world has ever known. In verse 28, it says, As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. I love that about Jesus. He actually didn't even need to go further. He just acted like he needed to go further. He, he could have. He, didn't, he, he had no business other than just to be with these doubting disciples. It's the only reason he was walking with them so long throughout the day, patiently. I would think if I just like conquered death, there's a lot cooler things I would do than walk with two like slow-witted doubting disciples all day. Jesus says, "Yeah, I actually need to go further too." He just kind of keeps walking with them. Verse 29, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he's been with them all day. So he went to stay with them. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and gave thanks. Does that sound familiar? It's Lord's Supper. It's communion. He broke it. He began to give it to them. Then, look at this, verse 31, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. Classic Jesus. I, when I read this earlier this year, it made me mad, honestly. I was like, that's just the way you roll, isn't it? Like, you know, like you're, you're trying so hard. People like, they don't experience you. Then you open their eyes and they see you and then you're out. But what you're about to notice here is they're not upset about this. There's no anger in these disciples. They're thrilled by what they just saw. And I imagine, it's not in the text. I imagine before Jesus disappeared, he probably gave him a little wink and like, a little wink and was like, we'll see you soon. You know, like, I think it was playful. Not like, whoops, you caught me. I'm out of here. You know, like I think it was something that he did that was just fun for him he disappears from their sight and look at this verse 32 they're not ticked they're not disappointed anymore they said we're not our hearts burning within us when as he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us as he began to show us the true story it's all about him and then they got up and they returned at once to jerusalem and they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and they said it's true the lord has risen. Now, there is a lot in there, but for our purposes today, here's just what I want you to take away. The stories we believe shape us into the people we become. The stories we believe shape us into the people we become. It's, they, they, they set the trajectory for your entire life. And that is because, as Pete Gregg points out, the stories that we live into are the stories that we live out. 
Think about these disciples on the road to Emmaus. At first, what's the narrative? What's the story they're believing? Jesus is dead. He's still in the tomb. And as a result, what does that do to their lives? They're depressed. They're confused. They're hopeless. They're literally walking away from God and into the unknown. But then Jesus opens their eyes. He shows them a true and better story. And what happens? Their hearts begin to burn. And from this place of great joy and peace and wonder and awe, despite it being late in the evening, despite the fact it had been a very dangerous journey to head back to Jerusalem, despite the fact that the, that the leader of their faith just got crucified, maybe they're wondering what's going to happen to us. They don't care about any of that. They run back to the church that they had left. And they begin to proclaim the gospel, the good news about the real resurrected Jesus. The story of God changed the directions of their, the direction of their entire lives. It transformed them completely from the inside out. And with all of that in mind, as we begin to come in for a landing this morning, here's the question I want you to ponder. What story are you believing? Are you primarily believing the story of God? Is that truly shaping, as you think about who God is and, and what he has done in Christ, is that shaping now who you are and how you live, how you handle your money, how you handle your job, how you handle your marriage, how you handle your free time? Are you primarily believing the story of God or are you believing a different story? See, the truth is we all believe stories. As the Hollywood screenwriter Bobette Buster once said, humans are narrative creatures. That, what, he, what she means by that is no matter who you are or where you come from, you cannot not try to make sense of the world through stories. Everybody in here is believing a story. You're believing a story about gender. Did you know that? You're believing a story about sex. You're believing a story about marriage. You're believing a story about relationships. You're believing a story about money. You're believing a story, a story about a parenting. You're believing a story about work. You're believing a story about why you're here and, and where you're going and how to live the good life. And those stories that you are believing about everyone and everything is shaping you for better or for worse into who you do or do not become. Jordan Peterson, who's a psychologist and best-selling author, says it like this. Stories are within themselves the frame of reference we use to perceive the world and act within it. Stories produce our motivation and our emotion. They are what makes sense of the current situation while also moving us toward the place we perceive. Notice we perceive it, not that it necessarily is, but the place we perceive as our desired destination. Dr. Paul Zak is the director of the Center of Neuroeconomic Studies of Claremont Graduate University. Big deal, right? And after extensive research, which you can read about in Greater Good Magazine, which is science-based insights for a meaningful life, he concludes the following. He says, stories move us to tears, change our attitudes, opinions, and behavior. Stories not only inspire us, but also have the power, look at this, to literally change our brains. In 2009, Joshua Glenn and Rob Walker designed a human experiment they called, quote, significant objects. And what they did is they bought a bunch of antiques for $128.74. And their goal was to then sell it on eBay by adding just one thing to this, a story. Until so they hired some writers to write these like sentimental little backstories about each one of these objects. All of them were totally false. None of the stories were true, but they included it in the description for each item on eBay. And as a result, guess what happened? People bought it. In the course of four months, every object was sold for a total of $3,612.51, which if you do the math, that's a $2,800 return on investment for nothing more than made-up stories. 
And before, you know, as easy as it would be to like kind of criticize the online buyers who were gullible enough to fall for that and say, that's so ridiculous. I can't help but wonder how many of us are doing the same thing when it comes to our own lives. How many of us, not even realizing it, maybe even this morning, have fallen victim to similar traps to these online buyers just on a much, much deeper and more dangerous level? Glenn and Walker's conclusion from the experiment was, quote, narratives have the power to transform insignificant objects into significant ones. And that is absolutely right. Stories shape us, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. The stories we believe can lead us into life or into death. So, again, what story are you believing? Some of you are believing a story that's being told by progressive culture right now. Some of you are believing a lie that you are what you have. Anybody seen the new Johnny Manziel documentary on Netflix? Anybody? A few of you? I was watching it yesterday. Johnny Manziel, you know, big-time college football player, got drafted in the first round, $8 million signing bonus, had all the girls, the partying, you know, the fame. And he has a line in there. For those of you who've watched it, you know that. But he literally said, when I got drafted, when I moved into the NFL, I finally had everything I had ever asked for, but I was emptier than I'd ever been. Why? Because he bought into a lie called the American dream. That the more you have, the happier you'll be. Some of you believe the lie that you are what others say about you, or you are what you feel, and so you think the ultimate good is I should be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, or be whoever I want, whenever I want, whatever feels good to me. And so you think the ultimate sin is that somebody would ever get in your way and try to keep you from doing whatever you feel like doing in the moment. Some of you, when it comes to religion and Christianity, you believe a story that says that if I want to go to heaven, all I have to do is pray a little prayer this little magic for me, the prayer, and ask Jesus into my heart, and then I can live however I want, and when I die, I'll go to heaven. Some of you have, have, have bought into what I would call a crossless Christianity. There you think that Jesus is really just here to maximize your life, and that's what the church is for, just to maximize your life. And, and if something is ever hard, if missional community is hard, if Sunday gathering is hard, if serving is hard, then it must be bad. We forget the fact that Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must pick up their cross and follow me. We all are believing stories. So I just want to ask you, again, what is the story you're believing? And here's two more questions I'd ask you. Who told you that story? Who told you that story? And why do you believe whoever told you is the ultimate authority for your life? In John chapter 8, Jesus calls the devil the father of lies. Which means the devil's primary strategy against you and your family, please hear this, it's not demonization. You know what I mean? Like what you see in the exorcist, it's not like to embody you. And His primary strategy against you is not demonization, it's not disaster, but it's deception. In the words of John Mark Comer, the devil's primary strategy is to sell you on deceitful ideas that play to your disordered desires. We see it all the way back in Genesis 3. Did God really say it's what the devil has been doing all along? It's how he took this thing down, and it's how he's trying to take you down right now. To sell you on a narrative about God, about yourself, and others that simply is not true. And this is why more than you need anything else, you need to know the truth. You need to know the story of God. You need to be rooted in Scripture and shaped by this story. And to help us get there, here's what we're going to do. Over the next six weeks, we're going to go through this entire Bible. And we're going to do it through kind of six big headings. Creation, crisis, covenant, Christ, 
church, and new creation. And we're going to try to notice and look together how all of this is really all about Jesus, about who he is and what he's done and will do and how it shapes who you are and how you're called to live. We've also uh, launched a landing page on our website with all kinds of resources on how to read the Bible, what the Bible is, and and listen, the whole point of all this, and we'll talk about a a lot more about this in in the weeks to come, but the whole point of this, guys, is I'm really not that concerned about you getting in the Bible. I'm really concerned about the Bible getting in you. Because I want Christ in you. That's what this is all about. It's about Jesus. I want Jesus in you. And one of the greatest ways to do this is to take in his word. You realize Jesus in John 1 is called the word. That's how he testifies about himself. We've got to get the word in you. My hope is for some of you is that, man, you will go from just having a head knowledge about Jesus to experiencing him in a personal and powerful way. Some of you, you're like the disciples in Luke 24. Despite the fact that Jesus has been with you your whole life, through all the ups and the downs, you just don't see him. You don't feel him. You don't, you don't know him in a real powerful and intimate way. And my hope is in this series that will change. You know, this summer, I was meeting with my spiritual director, and he said to me, he said, Jared, I want you to, um, I want you to take some time apart. I want to take some time apart. And he said, I want you to text me when you know that the risen Jesus is with you. And I thought, I'm a pastor. Like, I already know that. Like, the next day, I was like, I should text him. Like, I've got a master's in theology. I preach about the risen Jesus. But he was like, no, I I get that. I get that. I know that you have faith and you believe that. But I'm like, I want you to know that you know that the risen Jesus is with you. And so I, you know, waited. I knew that he was with me, but I wanted to feel that he was with me. And so I waited. One week goes by. Two weeks goes by. I'm at a pastor's retreat in Cherokee Village that I go to every year, and I'm on a boat on Lake Thunderbird with these pastors, and I'm talking to them about this little experiment. I want to know the risen Jesus is with me. And one of them just said to me, his name's Nathan Wagner, lives in Texas. He was like, dude, you need to start reading some fiction. Like, you need to read some C.S. Lewis. Like, you need to have your imagination redeemed. Like, I think your imagination's, like, all clogged up. And imagination, by the way, and faith go hand in hand. If you don't have an, a strong imagination, you're going to have a really hard time believing the creator of the universe is inside of you. you agree with that? Can we agree with that? So it's like, like, okay, whatever. So he's like, go read The Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis. Anybody ever read that book before? Okay, several of you. My wife's an English teacher, by the way, starting ninth grade English, teaching tomorrow at Green County Tech. Pray for me. Pray for me. Because my, my morning routine is about to be disrupted. So, And if you have time, pray for her and her students as well. So she loves reading fiction. I don't read fiction. But I start reading The Horse and His Boy. And, 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 and as I'm reading The Horse and the Boy, I've been meditating on Luke 24, by the way. Because I'm dumbfounded by how can you be walking with Jesus and not realize Jesus is with you? So I've been meditating on Luke 24. And I'll spare you all the details, but I'm sitting there one, one morning on my front porch. And I come to the very end of this book where C.S. Lewis does this beautiful thing with Aslan, who's the lion who represents God, and Shasta, this little boy who's lonely and felt like he had always been alone, and everybody had abandoned him, his friends, his family, all of this. And C.S. Lewis is this beautiful thing 
where he ties together Luke 24 and this story, but in a way where he talks about, you know, within the context of a horse and his boy. And to you, it might not have meant anything, but I'm telling you, I knew that I knew that I knew that the risen Jesus was there in that moment and that he had given me this story and this word and this moment. And since that time, listen, I'm telling you, like I have walked with a new awareness of Christ in my life in a real and personal and life-changing way. And my hope is, listen, through going through this story, that's going to happen for each of you. That you're not going to live off of my faith or your grandma's faith or your spouse's faith or your missional community leader's faith or your therapist's faith. You're going to have a personal encounter with the real risen Jesus through this series. And so with that, I'm going to invite the band to go ahead and come forward. I want to pray over us. If you will, just close your eyes, bow your head. And could you just right now just... Just say, God, whatever it is that you have for me through the next six weeks, I invite you to do that work. To open up my own eyes. To open up my own heart. For some of you, maybe the fires begin to go out. You just want to say, Jesus, like I, I, I want you to help me recover my first love. Create in me that fire. That I once had. Father I thank you for each person who is here today. For those who are listening online. And I pray. That God we would see. What stories we have been believing. That are false. That just are not true. Even the atheist maybe who is in this room. They are believing a story about you. They have no objective evidence to any of what they believe. And I pray that whatever the story is that we're believing that is false, the the half-truth, that you would replace it with the truth. Jesus, you are the way. You are the truth. You are the light. You are the one that we need. I pray that we would be a church, we would be a people, that all of our lives would be centered around you. I pray for the one who is here right now or listening online who does not have a personal relationship with you, that maybe today would be the day of salvation. And I pray that as we're about to sing, that we would sing with hearts that are, even right now, even right now, maybe one or two people in here, their hearts are beginning to come alive. We're beginning right now to open them up. But I pray that we would sing in such a way that would bring you glory and honor. It's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things.